Osiris. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Welcome back to We Move Through Stormy Weather, a fish podcast by Storm Sound and Osiris Media. My name is Ryan Storm, and today I'm joined by Scotty Zwang. Scotty is a professional drummer currently residing in Denver. He has recorded and toured with acts like The New Deal, Moore, Ghost Light, Rack, Chris McClenney, Dopapod, Conspirator, Greenhouse Lounge, Sonic Spank, Clown Vomit, and Code Anchor. Other collaborations have included members of Umphreys McGee, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, The Disco Biscuits, Lotus, Soul Live, Stanley Jordan, DJ Logic, and many more. He is skilled in a wide variety of musical genres, but is most notable for his work within the jam and live improv scenes. He is endorsed by Tama Drums and Hardware, Sabian Cymbals, Promark Sticks, and Evans Drumheads. Hi, Scotty. How are you? Good. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you for coming on today. Uh, it's a pleasure do this podcast with you you know it was great to meet you at peach a few weeks ago uh you know talk a little bit uh on your birthday get to see you play on your birthday with ghost light which was amazing uh now we're here and i'm excited thanks for having me uh the pleasure's all mine uh yeah it was a it was a great time i i always enjoy uh peach festival Mm -hmm. it was great you know seeing ghost light for the first time was really cool uh you know looking forward to that for years um and you know you have as I just listed off, you have quite an impressive resume uh, of acts, which is really, really cool. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But this is, you know, at its heart, this is a fish podcast, and we're here to talk about fish today. Uh, and so take me through, start me off. How did you get into fish? Uh, well, my journey with fish, if you will, started, I was about eight years old, uh, when my dad actually got into fish, he had, he had read sometime around 94, I want to say, mm-hmm. uh, an, an article in guitar player magazine on Trey. And, uh, so my father's a musician, um, or at least has always, you know, dabbled with this or that. Um, so when he first found out about him, he bought the records of that time period. 
So first, like Picture of Nectar and Rift. And then in 95, when I kind of started to discover them through him, uh, Hoist. And it was just always like a childhood memory of like going down in the basement where my dad had like an exercise room set up. And I like have very vivid memories of looking at the Hoist CD booklet and seeing them all in like old time bathing suit and like exercise (laughs) gear and thinking that this was really weird and uh, just kind of, you know, maybe not necessarily like falling in love with the the music at the time, but just feeling like a a connection. It really resonated with me. Um, But my journey as like an actual fish fan, I would say probably started around 99 when Farmhouse came out and just my own discovery of the music and not just you know from a friend or from a family member and how a Mm -hmm. lot of people got into music initially so that was kind of the beginning phases for me but obviously also the breakup for or the hiatus for the band so really like oh three i know they came back like tail end of oh two but like oh three was really my first experience of like really being a hardcore fish fan at this point Mm -hmm. i was about a year uh submerged into the jam scene and realizing that this whole entire uh genre or subgenre uh existed and i recall wanting to go to the fish festival it in the summer of 03 really badly uh Mm -hmm. with with my brother and his friends and he was pretty much like I would love to take you, but I want to have a fun weekend with my friends and I don't want to be watching my little brother. I was only like, I guess I just turned 16 when this happened. So uh, he was like, but I'll take you to the next one. And then Uh they announced that they were breaking up and my first festival and real like fish experience was, uh, I'll say, unfortunately, as much as I I did ultimately have a great time was Coventry. Right. Right. Uh, the so music was, was that terrible. Your, that but... was your first show? <laughs> uh, that was my first fish show. Yeah. Wow. I was trying to remember if maybe I went to uh, the Brooklyn shows that oh, like, in, came, yeah, that came about a month or two before that. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, it was really my first uh, movie theater experience Got was it. those Brooklyn shows. So, yeah, my first fish shows <laughs> were Coventry. That's quite, um, that's quite the first fish experience. <laughs> yeah, it was not that great, uh, musically speaking. Right. Uh, but, you know, first time festival goer, this like idea of a, you know, building a community and people existing with each other in this, you know, large but in the grand scheme of things small space for a weekend uh was just amazing and like all the mud couldn't have you know really put a damper on it for me it was still an amazing time we actually got to drive into the festival and it really didn't take as long especially compared so to like yeah compared <laughs> to some of the stories you hear like we got there like Thursday in the day lot and then got to drive in and set up and enjoy a day before music started. So ultimately it wasn't so bad. I definitely was like in knee high mud for a few days, but, Mm -hmm. uh, but it was great. And then, yeah, when they got back together in 09, I did, you know, made every effort to see as much as possible for like 09 and like 2010. And then it kind of like, drifted off a little bit they're still like one of my all-time favorite bands and a huge influence 
Um, but you know, I'm a big improv jam guy. And I feel like for the first few years they were doing really long set lists of like getting through the material and not yeah. so much jamming, especially right. the type two jamming, if yeah. you will. So I kind of took a little bit of a break and slowed down on spending a, a buttload of money going to see fish constantly. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a, a thing where, you know, every summer I try to see as many shows as I can. And, you know, if there's a, a fall tour or whatever that makes sense, you know, I'll, I'll try to see them a few times a year. Right. Awesome. So uh, will you be at Dick's this year? Yeah, that's actually the only shows of the summer that I'll uh, I'll be able to see. I don't know how many of them I'm going to do. I don't have tickets yet, but I'm, uh, I'm everybody confident. gets in, you know, it's not it, exactly. Yeah, it's going to be fun. This year will be my first uh, time going to Dick's and I'm, I'm very, very excited. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's a great time. The uh, The whole area is is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, but, you know, I, I love hearing stories of other people getting into fish uh, from a really early age from their parents or their family or whatever. Uh, cause, you know, that's how that's how I got into them through my dad. Nice. Um, and Coventry is, you know crazy like just what what was your impression you know you said that the music wasn't great uh from your perspective there but what was your impression of seeing your first fish show knowing that these were the last fish shows ever i mean honestly as sad as i was to see the band go um it was you know looking back on it it was super exciting i was still in this age where i wasn't too like jaded about right. the, the music scene and the experience and you know i'm, I'm fortunate to get to do a, a lot of cool things within the industry and just what my job entails but um i remember very vividly just that excitement of like the band's about to take the stage and you got to find the great the best spot that you can and there's a shitload of people there so you know like trying to get as close as possible right um and it was just really exciting to know that you know we were all going to be there for this experience and and get to you know hopefully experience something pretty great um and unfortunately musically it wasn't you know trey it's no secret trey was going through his whole you know drug addiction issues and it definitely showed a lot through those shows so it was kind of weird and then unfortunately i didn't really get to go to a fish festival for a while and then a few years ago i was like you know what now's the time you know uh how much worse could it also be than coventry and yeah. they, lit they literally scanned my ticket and i heard over the radio that i was gonna say ball was canceled i was gonna say you said a few years ago and i was like oh no i know how this story ends <laughs> yeah so those are my only two fish festival experiences is uh coventry and about uh 12 to 16 hours on site because they they let us come on site for the people that were there yeah. and set up camp and then uh and then yeah the, at like noon by noon the next day they were like everyone's got to get off the site um so you know not the best luck with fish festivals um but uh but still uh good stories nonetheless yes definitely definitely and i you know thank god they came back right <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and they're playing that. better and i you know i don't want to say they're playing better than ever but oh i, I, I do feel that, like though. but i do feel like they're playing better than they have since you know the uh the 3.0 if you will yes yeah the, the the summer tour so far you know just break the fourth wall a bit for everyone listening uh we are at the time of recording fishes five shows into uh summer tour 2023 uh, and it has been a hell of a run so far. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very 
excited to see 12 shows this summer. I'll say that. Nice. Um, but let, let's dive into uh, the, the song that you picked today. Uh, this is my first time doing it. You know, not a song I thought really would be discussed uh, on the pod at length, but I'm excited about it. You know, you were pretty... You, you were pretty quick to to pick this one when I said, uh, you know, you got to pick a song. And it's Forbin's Mockingbird. Um, yes. So departing from, you know, usually it's it's more of a, a jam analysis, uh, you know, the evolution of throughout the band's career. This is not. This is this is more of a narration kind of deal. Uh, and you picked a good one uh, from the most recent performance of Gamehenge on 7894. Um, yeah. So this cool. is one of my all-time favorite show so i knew the show i wanted to pick mm-hmm. or or at the very least i i i narrowed it down to summer 94. Uh, 94. yeah uh, there's just way too many amazing shows through that time period and like a lot of fish fans i feel like i'm still chasing this dream that i'm gonna go to a show one day and they're gonna do all of gamehenge and yeah. uh and i know that they did it a few times that summer um but I feel like, well, A, there's the recording of it, and they did the uh, dinner and a movie during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel like this is the best, uh, you know, representation of it. So, yeah, definitely. And so uh, th- this one is really cool. And so, you know, you just kind of started talking about why, why you picked uh, this show. But tell me about why the Forbin's Mockingbird was specifically what, what, what you went to uh, from the show and what you wanted to talk about here. I mean, I'm a huge, as much as I love improv, uh, I do have a huge spot in my heart for composition. A lot of the, uh, you know, older classic rock or however you want to, you know, put it. um, Some of my favorite bands are all based on the fact that they have really solid compositions and especially, you know, taking that like page out of Frank Zappa's book of being like modern composers. And I feel like Trey was at, you know, at his peak doing this. It's kind of crazy to think about like through, you know, let's say 83 or 84, but like during his, you know, final years at Goddard and writing this music as a Mm -hmm. senior thesis. um, I just, I have a lot of respect for the fact that, this is what it was you know it's funny listening to like old recordings of it and how uh the composition itself you know was written and it it existed but all the playthrough with the other members of the band i feel like really evolved and finally got to a super solid point i mean there's a lot in that 88 colorado run that you could hear that's like perfect and they really haven't steered away from that since but i feel like by 1994 they were really like firing on all cylinders. I mean, there's definitely a lot from like 89 to, you know, up until that point and that they have solid recordings that I love, which was also hard in picking this. It's like, do I go with like uh, 89? Um, I'm forgetting the park that they played in. in uh, Tell me right. No, it's not Tell. Well, Tell Rides the 88 Colorado tour. Oh, okay. But, but for like the official fish release, like when they did the CDs with the booklets and stuff. Got it. Um, there's like a whole bunch of amazing shows from 89 and 91 has some incredible stuff. Uh, I want to say like Bomb Factories from 
94. Bomb Factory is 94. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but there's just like Tinley Park 93. Like, there's a lot of that time period that I'm just like still fascinated with. And as much as there's a lot of arguments on when was their best year of playing, and right. obviously 95 um, uh, or going out of. 94 into 95 MSG and all these things are amazing, but there was just something about this show in particular, and especially you know, the game hedge concept of it, where like they played everything perfectly. Uh, the narration I think was handled really great. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's just something absolutely incredible about a song like Colonel Forbin's and how like it goes into Fly Famous Mockingbird. It was why I was like, can I do two songs? They're kind of right. one and the same, you know? Yeah, it, it works. It works well together here. And yeah, your point about the narration uh, in this show. Yeah, the, the narration, you know, in this segment, just it has so much purpose from Trey. He knows where he's going with it. There's no there's no meandering. That's part of, you know, other Forbin's Mockingbird narrations are like isolated and, you know, maybe he kind of thought about it before the show or like, you know, he's just kind of coming up with it. This is he's telling the story of Game Hen. So he knows what needs to be told in this segment before I believe the sloth is next. Um, but but before he gets to the next song, he knows what he needs to cover um, and, and he gets there. Uh, and, and it's just, yeah, your, your point about the creation of Game Henge and how cool that is. And, you know, like doing it in, in, in a bar in Colorado in 1988 is one thing. But doing this on stage at Great Woods in 1994 in front of thousands of thousands of people who were like in like in like rapture, you know, like get it getting to see the full performance of Game Henge, like that's incredible. Yeah, it's you know, and as far as like a legitimate historic amphitheater goes, you know, I still consider this kind of their backyard. Obviously, Great Woods yep. is in Massachusetts, but. It, it's pretty close and obviously there's also like family ties i know with like uh with gordon growing up like relatively close to the area um where there's just you could tell there's something really special about it and to go back to like your original question i just feel like the composition in a piece like this is absolutely incredible the technicality behind it all and it still just amazes me that a you know 21 to 20 21 maybe even 22 year old was able to come up right. with this entire yeah. concept and this little bit of it i just feel like is uh some of the most impressive music in in my experience it's super nerdy the whole concept and i'm i'm into that 100 yeah. percent. but it still doesn't take away from the fact that like this is like a, a modern classical piece of music done as a you know a four-piece rock band so yeah it's uh it, that's amazing. That's very, very, very well put. And I always think about, you know, these, these older compositions, like in, in like stuff like Yam and everything. Like I'm like, Trey wrote these when he was my age. Like, yeah. I can't imagine, like, how do you come up with this? Like, you know, it's, it's let alone coming up with a composition like this when you're like, you know, decades into your career and you know what you're doing, whatever. But like being like, I'm going to, you know, eat a bunch of acid at <laughs> age 22 and just like, you know, write Yam like yep. you know how <laughs> i like it, it it's it's crazy it's mind-blowing and yeah the fly famous mockingbird is one of the most complex compositions in the fish catalog um yeah. you know there, there's some crazy shit that happens in there yeah uh, so i don't know i don't know enough about music theory to really get into detail on that i just know that it's absurdly complicated 
Yeah, and I think there's a reason too that they haven't played it. To my recollection, I don't think they've played it since 2016 or something. Uh, like no, that. they played it uh, in uh, 2021 at Shoreline. Oh, they did. Yes. Okay. I tried yeah, to do a little bit of uh, of research into the when was the last time they did it because I haven't I haven't seen one. I don't believe. So. The the last so the last Mockingbird was yeah it was at Shoreline and then before that the Baker's Dozen and then 2015 2013 so it's only been played since they came back um, in 2009 it's only been played uh, nine times gotcha yeah so you know pre- pretty pretty long gaps there yeah <laughs> um, and so you know we talked about your pick uh, the one that I picked uh, today is from Super Bowl seven three eleven. You know, this show is very special to me. I've talked about this uh, on the podcast before, but this is the show that hooked me on fish. Uh, you know, when, when my dad went to Super Bowl in 2011 um, and then, you know, gave me on my iPod these shows and 7-3 set one, you know, specifically the Reba. But, you know, the, this whole show really was just like, okay, like this is amazing. <laughs> um, and, you know, th- this Forbins, you know, even when I knew nothing about the band, I, I like... I really felt drawn to the narration because the, so the narration here comes in between Forbins and Mockingbird. And there, there's something about just the goofiness of what's going on. It's, you know, you're playing at your, your ninth festival in front of tens of thousands of people. Um, you know, this is the, the day after they did the storage jam. Uh, and you know, that, you know, the Trey was just so excited to get on stage and be like, I'm going to, blow their minds with this connection to the storage jam with this wild story that I'm about to tell. Um, and, you know, talking about, again, I mean, you know, you brought up Colorado 88, this directly ties into Colorado 88 uh, with this narration, which I, I think is pretty cool, but talking about, you know, like driving out there in 1988 and, you know, he's like, Oh, by the way, like page was the best driver. Uh, <laughs> Fishman, you know, was the best at driving a long distance. Uh, he said, you know, like, too busy screwing around with the radio and being distracted and therefore was not allowed to drive Trey. Uh, and then that Mike was the worst driver because he would write in his journal <laughs> while driving, which like, yeah. And you can hear like, you know, the huge smile on his face while he's, while he's telling all these stories. Like, it's just, it's amazing. I agree. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and it keeps going on with the narration, uh, you know, how, how they got, they were driving this old Plymouth Voyager and they, they get stuck in this storage unit. Um, and then they just started playing and playing and, you know, created a mental projection with the music and that everything since 1988 in a storage unit is like, you know, all an illusion and, you know, they're going to stop playing and it's going to vaporize and they're still going to be in the storage unit. And then, I, I mean, I obviously you know, everyone should go listen to this actual narration because I I can't tell it as well as Trey can. Uh, But (laughs) to sum it up, you know, the famous Mockingbird now uh, is a postal delivery bird um, and is bringing them like a key or a special product to get them out of the storage unit. Um, But, you know, and it all ties into, you know, the crazy storage jams from the night before, which would then, you know, be hugely influential on the band's music for the rest of that summer and, and going forward in 3.0. And that's kind of, you know, you talked earlier about how they weren't jamming so much at the beginning of 3.0. Um, the storage jam was the, like the opening of Pandora's box, kind of getting them back into it. You know, you have a, some, some big jams before like the Albany seven below ghost in 20, 2009. Um, the, the blossom down or pine knob down with disease. I believe it's six, four, 11, um, which I think is the, the best jam 
of 3.0 until somewhere in mid 2012. Mm -hmm. Um, but the storage jam was really when it was like, okay, like we can get back into deep space here. This is not, you know, like we're going to get there again. And I mean, they did. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing. I think it was around this time period. And after hearing of friends that went to Super Bowl, that I was like, Okay, I think it's time for me to to go back and see. I mean, there had only been about a year or so yeah. that I was like, you know, I'm, yeah, tired, yeah. I'm tired of spending a hundred dollars a night to go see my favorite band just yeah. play songs that I can go back and listen to better versions with longer jams from, you know, uh, a decade or even longer before. Yeah. Um, but I definitely have that spot where I'm just like, I'm constantly chasing something and I'll say that it's game hinge. Like I think a lot of people, but it's not just about this one, you know, group of songs for me. I mean, the band has quite a repertoire of music, uh, whether it be amazing choices in covers that I feel like they've kind of taken on as their own um, or just the, you know, hundred hundreds of you know compositions that they've written themselves that uh really resonate with me so um i feel like it was around this time period that i was like okay i think i need to go i think i was also just jealous and upset that i missed a solid festival festival i mean festival eight i thought was great um i really liked the concept the album was awesome and it was cool yeah yeah and it was cool they did a west coast festival um instead of doing it you know typically in their at least close enough to their homes in the northeast mm-hmm. um or obviously i know big cypress is obviously uh, big cypress is pretty far thing, but you know, it's, it's but yeah so um yeah i think it was just the okay i need to get back into this i, I might miss something so right. i need to go as often as i possibly can <laughs> yeah it's you know j- just when i think i'm out they pull me back in you exactly know, yeah like you know, you can try to quit fish all you want. Uh, you know, you can go back, listen to like ton of other bands, but then, you know, like, you know, for me, like, not that I've lost any of my love for fish, but you know, I, I follow goose so intensely these days and you know, they, they've been touring so much for the first half of this year. And it's like, you know, and then I end up listening to so much goose and then fish tour starts. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, here we go again. Like this is, this is what, you know, and then it, like my excitement for, the shows that I'm seeing this summer just keeps growing, uh, you know, with, with every night that happens. And yeah, it's, yeah, you can't escape your love, uh, for the best band in the world, you know? Yeah. It's also, it's one thing to see a band that, you know, is heavily influenced and does a really great job with this music that you love versus seeing the band that like arguably started, you know, uh, it all for at least the modern jam bands. I mean, obviously I'm not trying to take away from, the importance that is the the Grateful Dead or even the Allman Brothers for that matter. But, um, Different. you know, it's definitely, you can hear with our generations of jam bands that, you know, Fish has a huge, huge part in um, how people decided that this was the kind of music that they were going to make. Yeah, and I, I was talking to someone about this the other day. You know, when the Dead would go type two or whatever, it would mostly be you know, like kind of like a free jazz kind of thing, you know, just like kind of in space, everyone kind of doing, you know, nonsense. And that's awesome. But yeah. Fish kind of pioneered the really cohesive type two jams. Yeah, uh, they're they're composed they're composing on the spot. Yeah. 
Um, and not that the dead hasn't done stuff like that as well, but I agree. It, it does come more from, you can tell these people, although they grew up, you know, loving bluegrass and like the folk music of that time, you can tell that like jazz and especially like yeah. the, uh miles davis bitches brew era of things had like a huge influence on what you could do with electric instruments especially mm -hmm. the guitar and uh and just improvising in a in a rock band setting so yeah well yeah like if you listen to like you know the dead in the early 70s you know you're not getting like you know something that like fish kind of did like you know you're not getting a jammed out uh for example you're not getting a jammed out tennessee jet you know, yeah. Tennessee Jed's going to be six, seven minutes. It's going to be great. You're going to get a nice Jerry solo. But, you know, there's not going to be a random Jed that's just going to be 20 minutes. You know, with, with Fish, any song on any night can be the jam vehicle. They, they you know, th that's been a huge thing the last few years. Just like, what happens if we jammed out Sample in a Jar? You know, what yep. happens if we jammed out the end? Like last year at, uh, at at Blossom, what happens if we jam out the ending of Free instead of the middle jam part of it? Like that that's that's the fish thing, you know. It's the the unpredictability that anything can happen. You know, if you're and I mean, I, I feel like it might seem at this point like I'm knocking the dead. I'm not knocking the dead at all. No, no, no. no I love I the Dead so much. Um, but like you know, they start playing in the band, they start Dark Star, Birdsong, et cetera. You know, like, hey, these are the jam vehicles. These are where I'm getting the jam. With Fish, they could start Tweezer and then it could be eight minutes long, then they could go into something else. You know, it's, yeah. it's not necessarily going to be the jamming highlight of the show just because it's one of their biggest jam vehicles. And that's one of the things I love about them so much. Yeah, it's also, it's interesting because, you know, like you said, I and I've said before with other bands, like without much like how the modern jam bands that we have now goose and all these would not have existed without fish mm -hmm. fish wouldn't have existed without the grateful dead Correct. and and even more so talking about song like colonel forbin into uh, fly famous mockingbird you know without their influence of zappa and you know the musicians of that time that were really composing music they were just the modern composers they were the the beethovens the mozarts of that time period yeah. using the instrumentation that was new and you know around for them to pick at um but what's interesting is that you know zappa it's no secret that zappo's bands were heavily heavily rehearsed that you know they would do maybe multiple shows a night or multiple shows without a run and they would do this set list and they would rehearse it so that then they can pick and choose it was how he was able to get so much material out and constantly putting out records of taking little bits from this live show that they're liked and going back and overdubbing a different instrument redoing the vocals whatever it might be um Whereas with fish, they kind of took those concepts of things, but they kind of did it still in this improvised way, live yeah. and stage, taking the risk, understanding that, you know, sometimes you're going to, you know, you're going to play like shit, but at least you took that chance to get to those, you know, whether it's a type two or whatever, to get to something that you wouldn't have gotten to otherwise, if you didn't, you know, take a leap of faith. Yeah. It's, it's page talks about this in the, the it documentary where it's, you know, there might be a 35 minute jam where, and this is especially true of the 2.0 era, you know, you might, be, there might be the 35 minute jam and the first 15 minutes of the jam are like nothing crazy, but then they strike gold, you know, in, in the last 
10, 15 minutes. I know that that math doesn't add up to 35, but no, the point but I'm if, making stands, yeah. you know, you need that first chunk to get to whatever they're going to find after searching for 15 minutes. Um, and with each year that goes by and, you know, they're now 40 years into their career, like the time needed to get to that, like amazing improv point just keeps getting shorter. Yeah. You know, it, every tour now it's like they're in full type two zone, like two minutes into the jam. Like, yeah. you know, there's no, there's no time being wasted, uh, which is so cool to hear, you know, the, the maturity of which the, like that they play with and, and the intense connection that they share musically, you know, they're, they're four quarters of one brain uh, at this point. And that's the thing you don't get with the, the younger jam bands yet, which is not their fault. It's just, they haven't been playing together for decades. And so they don't have this kind of musical connection that the four guys in fish have. And that's really cool. And I wanted to also mention your point about kind of um, making new songs out of what comes out of a live show. Um, and you can hear that, you know, in, in some cases with fish and, you know, if you listen to like 1974 grateful dead shows, you hear Jerry playing around with slipknot like mm -hmm. a ton throughout the year before that song was written. Um, but if you go back, you know, you can find things like 8718, that the light from that show is the birth of We Are Come to Outlive Our Brains, which would be, you know, in the Casva Vaxxed Halloween set later that year. You can hear, you know, them playing the chord progression from that song that wasn't written yet. And that's clearly where when they were writing those music uh, or those songs, one of them was like, hey, we played this cool progression in August. Let's make a song out of that. And yeah, it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy when stuff like that happens. I, <laughs> I feel like, um, you know, you don't catch it so much with a band like fish or maybe I just don't. Cause I, I kind of don't listen to, uh, any modern live fish shows, whether I've been there, there and I, and I enjoyed them or not. I very much uh, enjoy the experience of being there in the moment mm -hmm. and that energy and feeling that vibe, like Trey says in uh, the bittersweet motel documentary that like, it's not about getting all the transitions. It's not about like, I missed up, I messed up and I missed this note mm -hmm. or whatever. It's just, it's all about the vibe. And, you know, I just, I find a hard time getting sucked back into it. And maybe it's also that I'm just one of those people that like, I go back to these 1990s shows because I feel like I, I missed it. And also like they're in their, you know, late twenties, early thirties doing this thing. They're still like, you know, relatively young and there's a lot of like piss and vinegar and like really going for it. And you obviously learn a lot and mature, um, you know, like the, machine gun tray if you will as people say era yeah. is is probably not going to happen again because it's hard to get that when you are in your 50s or your 60s yeah, yeah um yeah. you learn yeah. a lot over time of like maybe i shouldn't be overplaying and i should have a little more intent with what i'm doing and and not that they didn't have that intent um i i do have an understanding of when musicians mature and they don't whether it's a physicality or just like that mental concept of like i don't need to play a million miles an hour like that's not what this is about right um but i do like the that time period of things or like if trey hits a wrong note 
like there's still like intent within it where like somehow he makes that wrong note right mm -hmm. yeah amazing uh that your your point about uh kind of the the mu musical maturity is something I, I i wanted to transition to asking you about you know your own musical projects and your musical playing um and I, I was curious going back to you know when you went to coventry for the first time were you already playing drums yeah i started playing drums when i was i always thought it was eight years old i kind of lumped it in this like 95 like i heard fish for the first time and then my dad got me a drum set but mm -hmm. um i did see a receipt recently where my dad was correct and that uh, i started playing drums when i was nine years old so 96 um i might have had a drum pad before that and that yep. was kind of what sparked my dad's uh interest in like oh it, it looks like he likes this instrument let's get him a drum kit and my dad played drums when he was a kid too so um he had a lot of respect and support of you know and my mom too of like let's get our son a, like the loudest instrument known to mankind just naturally um especially when you're a kid and you don't have concepts of like dynamics and what to do you're kind of just beating the crap out of them right um so yeah i had a drum kit when i was nine and you know the first year was probably kind of terrible for everyone in the house um and then i slowly started to connect with the instrument and um you know i wasn't really uh, into jam bands or any of that stuff i mean like i said my my dad showed me fish um my dad's a huge almond brothers fan and then any of the other like classic rock of that time period um you know maybe was in my like lexicon of of music but by like 96 97 especially in 98 i started to kind of develop my own love for music and it was really in that you know post grunge time period of stuff so you know um the nine inch nails and you know nirvana but like foo fighters um incubus 311 uh, sublime mm -hmm. so like the first record i ever played and like learned essentially note for note from beginning to end was sublime's self-titled record uh bradley had just passed away and it was all over the news and um i kind of fell into that zone and it wasn't until like fall of 02 that my brother took me with his friends to go see soul live and yeah. that was where everything changed for me and you know i spent a lot of time from 99 to 02 playing drums constantly and learning all of that time periods alternative rock but by you know fall of 02 and especially 03 like i was a full-on hippie you know um you know i'm fortunate enough to get to play with them now but like mm -hmm. 2001 was really the first time i heard jam music on my own when my friend showed me the new deal and i had no idea that that music could be played with live instruments right um and especially as a drummer i was so used to that music being played with drum machines so this concept of like oh, I could sit downstairs in my basement and I can play these beats and do this and I can make people dance in that sort of way was just really interesting to me. Um, and, you know, flash forward to 22 years later and I, I get to play in, in the New Deal. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, during that time period, I would say um, is really where my music style like evolved into, you know, what I do for a living now. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, it was definitely a lot of practicing and playing and playing and playing all of the time. I mean, high school definitely had its moments of like, I'm now, you know, a derelict teenager smoking weed and not <laughs> going home and practicing for hours and hours. But yeah. I definitely played a lot all through, you know, age nine through like 18 or 19 and then i joined this band code anchor in when i was 19 years old and i dropped out of college and i went back to playing you know essentially eight hours a day um or at least i was in at least i was in a rehearsal room practicing playing drums working on vocals and all these things i hadn't done before for an eight hour time period now it was probably closer to like four or five hours of physically practicing or or playing my instrument or working on my vocals, but um, I dove headfirst into this is what I'm going to do for a living, and mm-hmm. uh, and it takes it takes practice. So yeah, amazing, amazing. And so going to Coventry in '04 for the first time, you know, being a drummer, was there something about the way Fishman was playing that like stuck out to you there, or did you go in already prepared, knowing like this guy is you know incredible at the drum? Oh, I was, I was. I was fully obsessed with all of fish at this point. Yeah. Um, much like a lot of people, Trey and like viewing him in like this godly kind yeah. of way and which is kind of Still weird. But <laughs> um but Fishman, yeah, was definitely a huge influence in just what you could do with your instrument. Um uh whether it was different time signatures or playing this feel on top of that feel or even this time signature or on top of that time signature or you take a song like taste yeah which you know all of them are in a different time signature and fishman's limbs are each in a different time signature yeah (laughs) um and it really you know it's like it's hard to do this concept for some people now imagine growing two more arms or even trying to do something with your you know legs right, yeah. or whatever it is and having to do all of that at the same and time. also singing yeah um it's in does he sing for he taste sings in as taste well too, yeah. yeah so he's doing five different things all at the same time and it's it's absolutely you know mind-boggling to me i mean a lot of people i feel like hate on the record i don't know why but uh with like a with farmhouse like you have you know even songs on there that are, I'm totally, I'm a terrible fish fan right now and I'm blanking on a song, but like there are definitely songs on there too, where I'm like, what is he even doing? I have no idea how he is able to do I limb by limb. I mean, is a, is a fantastic Another amazing example, example. Yeah. of like, you know, it's absolutely crazy how he does it. And if you don't watch him do it, you'll spend your entire life trying to figure out how he actually does it. Right. It's, I just remember the first time I, I really kind of appreciated Fishman's drumming. And I was just kind of watching him play and being like, oh my God, like, you know, he's so tight while at the same time being so loose. Like, there, there's so much space in his groove uh, when, when he's playing. You know, I feel like a lot of other drummers I listen to, especially in jam bands, they're a lot tighter uh, into the groove. Like, but. I always remember this this interview with Stuart Copeland uh, that I heard about when he went to go see Fish in 2015. Uh, I think it was at, at the Forum in LA, um, and he was talking about how he was in the crowd at one point, and you know he was listening to Fishman and being like, "Wow, he's like, you know, he's really playing." Um, and then he went side stage uh, and was watching and was 
amazed by how light Fishman's touch is on the drum yeah. while getting so much sound out of the kit. Yeah. Which is uh, really cool. He's a he's a big influence. Uh, I mean, some of the bands that I've I get to play with, especially like the Tom Hamilton projects and and, you know, um, you know, his work with Joe Russo and Russo's connection with the fish guys and mm -hmm. and all that stuff, which I went to a bunch of those grab uh, tours um, and seeing those are Phil cool and show. friends. And I was obsessed with the duo. I think I discovered them in like oh five. So you know, it was, it was pretty constant of seeing them and whatever tours they were involved with. Um, but this concept of a lot of bands and especially in our jam band world, they can really play dynamically between, you know, four and up. And especially a lot of them sit in this like six to nine range and like 10 is like, you know, it happens a bunch, but like, mm -hmm. it's really hard for people to sit in this like one to three zone where a lot of like magic can happen. But like it, it involves not only the musicians to be really focused and to really listen to each other, but it also requires the audience to really be focused and listen to each other. And, you know, that can be tough when you have, you know, tens of thousands of people in the audience and, <laughs> you know not to be mean but probably 25 percent of them are chompers that like just like to talk the whole time right. and they they don't realize that the band is dynamically bringing things down to a point so that they can listen to each other and you can listen to them and instead of taking it as like let's focus in on what they're what what they're trying to do it's this like oh let's talk or if they get into a really uncomfortable weird out there avant-garde section similarly i don't know if it's because people are physically uncomfortable with like the weirdness that is happening or if mm -hmm. it's just a quiet moment that people feel like it's like now's the time to talk and it's like i feel like you're get you're missing the point this is the time to listen you you can you can kind of talk and still absorb music when people are playing in this five to ten range but like anything lower than that is really when you want to start paying attention to like what it is that they're trying to to say especially when you spent a hundred bucks or, or more to go to this concert or for have the experience um, to just talk the whole time has always been kind of confusing to me. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll, I'll never get that either. People, people <laughs> are weird. Uh, but uh, before we, before we wrap up the discussion here, uh, I do yeah. want to highlight, uh, give you the opportunity to talk about your current projects and things that you have coming up uh, sure. this summer, this fall, rest of this year. Um. Yeah. I mean, a bunch of my projects right now are in this like either waiting until next year to tour, whether that's because we're in a creative process or we had, you know, a crazy year last year. I don't think at this point it's much of a surprise that uh, Ghostlight had a lot of changes happen in 2022. So we really took this year off. Peach was the only show. I'm glad that you got to to see it me too <laughs> so um but next year should be relatively busy um and i just moved out to denver so you know i'm doing a bunch of the colorado stuff and just playing with a lot of people out here and getting to know um all of the musicians in the music industry out here uh, a lot of them that i've never even heard play or have met before so it's been nice to get to do that and to just kind of be in this creative zone as well at home of getting to do stuff. I have this 
amazing studio set up here where you know i can work on my craft but also i can record and experiment as much as i possibly want so that's nice um but i do have a few things here or there um my project more with uh Tom Hamilton and like the original Brothers Pass guys. Mm -hmm. uh, we have some stuff that we've just constantly been putting out, especially since our performance at Playing in the Sand earlier this year. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we have, I think, some shows and stuff that we're about to announce, as well as like more recordings and things that we've worked on. So there's been a lot more of a creative process than a touring process, which is is nice. Um, I definitely miss touring. You know, um, I it's a big part of why I do what I do is I enjoy getting to experience different cultures and eating different foods and seeing new places. You know, sometimes the touring lifestyle means that you really only get to see the inside of your hotel room and the, yeah. the, lo the lobby for maybe 10 or 15 minutes and then the inside of the venue. But, uh, but I do enjoy the chaos that comes with, with touring and going out and playing music. And, and obviously most importantly, the, uh, getting to play on stage in front of people, that whole energy exchange is, uh, is why I, I really do this. But, um, but, you know, I'm enjoying this, you know, slower pace of life at the time and getting to enjoy, uh, Colorado's nature and going on hikes and doing all that stuff when I'm not, uh, working on music, uh, which I do have a, a lot happening out here, uh, random, jam nights and other shows even some weddings and i'm, I'm essentially i Love moved it. out i moved out here with the concept of for six months i'm gonna take pretty much anything that is thrown my way so that i can meet new people and have different experiences and you know there's also something whether it's you know learning a lot of it learning covers but um you know spending time to focus on music that I don't normally play or even know for that matter mm -hmm. that, I, that I feel like, uh, it sucks me into this role of not only being completely in sync with my instrument, but it also at a certain point, um, fully inspires me to be like, okay, I don't want to do that anymore. I just want to focus on original music. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's been nice. That's really cool. And fans of, uh, ghost light and more, uh, like that, if you haven't checked it out already, the previous episode of We Move Through Stormy Weather uh, is an interview that I did with Tom Hamilton uh, at Peach. We talk about those projects. He hints the same thing that you do, that there's very exciting things coming for more uh, pretty soon and Ghostlight uh, next year. Uh, and so I'm very excited about all that. Uh, but yeah, definitely go check out that episode. Um, it's a fantastic, fantastic, quick little 15-minute interview that I did with Tom uh, before J-Rad's set at Peach. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm very excited, uh, for everything to come. I look forward to seeing you at Dick's, uh, in September. That's going to be, yeah, for sure. Definitely, definitely hit me up. Don't be a, a stranger. Also, did you just talk with Tom for 15 minutes or did you talk about fish at all? <laughs> uh, there will be a fish episode with Tom okay. in the future. Uh, that will happen. We, we, we've dipped our toes in that one a little bit. I've kind of gotten the vibe on what his opinions are. Uh, and I'm very excited, uh, to talk to him.
he's got a spot in his heart for them. Don't let him fool you. It's just oh, yeah. uh, he loved them so much that he had to steer away from them so that it didn't come out in his music. So. Right. <laughs> no, and I, I know I know how much he loves them based on the you know the the teases that get thrown in in J Rad shows uh, yeah. you know pretty frequently. Yeah, uh, which is which is always fun. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, doing a fish episode with him as well. Nice, dude. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so much uh, for coming on the pod today, Scotty. It's been a pleasure to sit down with you uh, and chat, and I look forward to seeing you know many of your projects in the future. Obviously, I can't wait to see Ghost Light again. I look forward to hopefully seeing more uh, at some point in the future and everything else that there is to offer. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I had a lot of fun, and uh, you know, it's always nice to talk about uh, one of my favorite bands with another fellow fan um especially since sometimes i feel like there's this like taboo in a way of like uh, if you're in a band in the jam band scene that like right you just you can't you can't just talk about fish bec- all the time because you know it's just the obvious go-to but uh but i you know i'm a music nerd who loves fish and i'm i'm glad i had the opportunity to discuss it with another fellow fish nerd yes it's the best way to be uh, yeah. And thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of We Move Through Stormy Weather. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks with another episode from another musician in the jam scene that I met at Peach uh, that I'm actually recording two hours after this one, breaking the fourth oh, nice. wall. Uh, but everybody, have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you for listening. Uh, don't forget to follow at Stormy Podcast on social media if you're not already. Let me know your favorite parts of this episode, your favorite versions of Corbin's Mockingbird favorite narrations throw that out there as well uh let us know you know want to hear from you uh and you know hear about your favorite versions uh so thank you thank you again for listening and i will see you next time Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.